0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Podcast. I'm your host, Vago Meradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining us now is Brian Clark, the Director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute Think Tank to discuss the new paper he co-authored with his colleague, Dan Pat, Campaigning to Dissuade Applying Emerging Technologies to Engage and Succeed in the Information Age Security Competition. Uh, Brian, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us on this week's technology report.
1: Thanks, Vago. It's great to be here.
0: Uh, Indeed, uh, a pleasure. Uh, And a word from our sponsors. Our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. HII sponsors are global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors are strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors are command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors are air and naval uh, coverage. Uh, Brian... Um, one of the central points that you guys make is that we're not going to be able to simply spend our way out of uh, the China challenge, right? I mean, there's uh, scale issues. The Chinese have been at this uh, for more years than, we've, uh, than we have been, unfortunately, even though we sort of started turning to this issue uh, more than, uh, you know, about a dozen years ago, right? It was during the Obama administration where it was like, holy crap, the Chinese really are up to something uh, and we should be preparing for it. Um, you and Dan have been working on this sort of broader concept of harnessing technologies for dissuasion and for deterrence. Walk us through sort of the fundamental core of your strategy and strategic thinking before we get to the specifics of your report. Sort of like broadly, right. how do we need to be thinking about where we are and where we're going?
1: Yeah, so if I got, you, know, you really can boil it down to, um, you know, as you said, China has some uh, advantages geographically um, in terms of you know, where confrontations are likely to occur. Um, and they've got some uh, benefits in terms of capacity and their headroom, in terms of their budgets, um, that allow them to devote a lot of attention and, and resources to dealing with the United States in a particular context, like an invasion of Taiwan. So yeah, the U.S. has global responsibilities. China has very local responsibilities. Um, and as a result, they can get a significant capacity advantage on us. So we need to think about um, how do we maintain military superiority in a world where you know, we are at a numerical disadvantage against a home team opponent like China? So all the work we've done over the last you know four four or five years, uh, both at CSBA and now at Hudson Institute, has been focused on this idea of how do you gain military advantage uh, in that type of situation? And we've found that you know a lot of, a lot of what it revolves around is how do you gain a decision making advantage? How do I make it so that I can degrade my opponent's ability to make? Faster, better decisions. How do I improve my own ability to make faster and better decisions? Um, you know, a lot of that uh, involves technology. You know, such as for command and control um, AI is a is a big feature of this latest study that we've done. Um, it's also partly about force design. It's about you know, do I have a more diverse force that I can recompose in ways that allow me to uh, create complexity for the opponent. I uh, make a more adaptable force for myself, and you kind of see the military, U.S. military, making you know forays into this direction with things like you know, JAD two, with their uh, embracing of unmanned systems. So that's a, the the big trend that we're seeing is, or the, the the argument we're making is that we have to focus on getting a decision making advantage um because we can't really rely on a traditional uh, numerical advantage or um you know weapons lethality advantage which is what we had been relying on you know since we invented precision weapons right. back during the late cold war. Uh
0: and I'm going to ask you uh because it's no, no longer joint all domain command and control it's now uh, <laughs> combined joint all domain yes. command and control. <laughs> and I want to get to that in a minute because you know w- w- there are some who say well this is a journey Uh, And it's never a destination, whereas now it it apparently is a destination, which it should be a destination. And I think we should have been listening (laughs) to Dave Goldfein. Um, You know, eight years ago, uh, when he was talking about that early in his tenure and how important uh, it actually was to fuse uh, these systems together. Um, Let me ask uh, very quickly because some of the folks in the audience, uh, I know that this is a Washington audience. It's a very esoteric argument. What's the difference between deterrence and dissuasion? Just really quickly, explain to the audience what do you mean about dissuasion? What do you mean uh, when you say deterrence? And, you know, how significant a difference do those two words mean, except in an academic setting?
1: Right. You know, so um, this is, its you know, dissuasion was used a lot um, during the early part of the 21st century in U.S. defense documents. So QDRs, uh, defense strategies talked about this idea of dissuasion with the idea that, you know, we were going to try to dissuade countries like China and Russia from, you know, re-embracing their more aggressive pasts or or becoming um, more bellicose, dangerous actors on the world stage. Um, So dissuasion is really about how do I um, steer an opponent uh, away from courses of action, away from scenarios that I find more damaging to my interests or that I think are more dangerous overall. Um, when when those actions are not imminent, so deterrence is generally something we associate with. I'm going to try to convince this guy not to do something that he is prepared to do and is in is capable of doing, you know, at any moment. Um, dissuasion is more about how do I steer him away from getting to that point where conflict is imminent. Uh, it's more of you know you'd say earlier in the in the process of uh, deterrence, You know, dissuasion is maybe the early form of deterrence. Deterrence is more of the, I'm going to st- uh, prevent you from, you know, taking this action now as it's becoming imminent. Um, and so the argument we make in the report is um, right now, conflict with China is not imminent. You know, there are not Chinese troops massed on the coast. Um, you know, China's taken obviously some actions to make, try to make itself more resilient economically and militarily against you know, U.S. action during a fight. But it's not imminent. They're not on, they're not ready to on the balls of their feet. You know, waiting to invade Taiwan. So a lot of the actions we talk about taking to deter are just going to have us put ourselves on the balls of our feet and sort of wait for a conflict that might never come and thereby you know maybe uh, reduce our ability to handle other scenarios that China might present right. to us because an invasion is obviously not the only thing they can do and, and maybe not even the preferred uh, scenario that they may pursue. So that's where we see the difference between those two things as
0: um, I, I'm going to, we're going to get, uh, for those uh, folks who are wondering, where do we get to the technology uh, portion of this? I'm going to get to that in, in just a second. Uh, but the administration has been uh, discussing its integrated deterrence strategy, right? To try to use all arms of national power. So not just military capabilities, uh, technological, diplomatic, uh, economic means as well. The sense that the investment in infrastructure and science uh, is, is all going to yield benefits in an integrated uh, fashion and help the United States sort of shape uh, the space, understanding that we're in a right. much more competitive environment today than we were uh, for, for decades. F- from your standpoint as somebody who has, I think, been thoughtful, and obviously this is your paper here is an element, by is an effort by you and Dan to sort of inject how we could sharpen our game. What, what parts of, from your guys' understanding, because there are right. classified elements of this and public elements, sure. that this is actually a workable right path we're on, and if right. so, if, and if not, where it's weak, where we can improve it.
1: Yeah, so um, I would say you know integrated deterrence is intended to you know, in, entail this element of dissuasion. It was intended to be sort of a multifaceted approach on the part of the US government to convince opponents not to pursue you know, violent action against US allies or, or partners um, and using you know, economic tools, diplomatic tools, information tools, using all those tools at our disposal. Um, but what it's devolved to in practice when you get into the Pentagon and talk, you know, what force planning you know, uh, models are being used, our uh, force planning is all around the idea of deterrence by denial. So, you know, we are organizing the military to deny an invasion of Taiwan because it's an easy problem to solve. It's an understandable problem to analyze. Um, you can grade you know, the, the military services against you know, that objective uh, and you can do modeling and simulation around it. So we've taken a strategy problem and we've turned it into an operational problem that's much more tractable. Um, but of course, you know that's not much of a strategy then. You've really just turned this boil this down to a, an operations research problem, which um, I mean, people like me just love to analyze, but unfortunately that's not how strategy should work. Um, and so then the, a, a big question is where the technology comes in is if your strategy essentially boils down in practice to deterrence by denial, um, and you're doing analysis around that, um, one question is, well, okay, if we can't completely deny, which, you know, that's that's where the um, the preponderance of military power on the, on the part of the Chinese and the geographic advantage they have come into play is, can we really deny completely the ability of China to invade Taiwan? You know, probably not. I mean, if they really were going to do it, then they'd be, if they were willing to bear any cost, they could certainly do it, uh, and we wouldn't be able to stop them. So if we can't completely deny them then what is the level of uncertainty that's sufficient for them to be deterred? Or you could argue dissuaded. You know, we can you know create significant and sufficient uncertainty today that they would ever be able to reach that level of confidence in their ability to invade Taiwan on an acceptable timeline at an acceptable cost. Now, maybe they're going to pursue other paths, you know, like a less aggressive path, like an economic path or maybe, you know, even a a trade path or, or even a blockade path that might be preferable to an invasion. So that's where the technology comes in is we need to use our technology now to understand what's the level of uncertainty for China that is enough for the Chinese leadership to decide invasion is really not the best path for us. We want to go pursue some of these other avenues to try to bring Taiwan back into the fold. Um, so we need to have a way of operationalizing intelligence. We need to be able to use um, new technologies like artificial intelligence enabled algorithms. Yeah, We need to use the vast amount of open source intelligence that's being gathered and hoovered up and integrated uh, amongst both the open source community as well well as the military, um, and start using that to be able to determine what is that uh, level of uh, uncertainty on the part of the Chinese? What are things that could make them more uncertain and then begin to campaign in an effort to drive them in the direction we want them to go?
0: So, um, you know, uh, f- full uh, credit for at least ringing the alarm bell very early was Deputy Defense Secretary Bob Work, who was talking about AI in a way that nobody was um, more than a decade ago. And at the time, there were some who were rolling their eyes at-, at that. But he was, you know, his whole point is, it's going to change the game on almost every vector. And and the sooner we can master this and figure out what kind of uh, capabilities to be able to field, the-, the-, the better off we're going to be at a time when the Chinese and the Russians were talking about similar sorts of things, but perhaps not in as integrated and as thoughtful a manner. And obviously he and Dr. Eric Schmidt uh, right. you know worked on the national AI strategy and, and the, right. the, the whole enchilada. Just really quickly before we, we get to that, you maintain that there were five things that have changed that we need to bear right. in mind as we shape our future investment and, and approaches, right? There's sort of the three lines of effort that comes out right. of this changed right. environment. Just real quickly for the audience, yeah. what are the five, th- five things they've changed? and what are the, th- the, you know, the three things we've got to focus on given those big changes?
1: Yeah, so so we did. We talk about the central idea as being: I want to dissuade China away from aggression. regression. I need to better understand, you know, their preferences, their concerns, their uncertainties. Um, you know, there's, there's five trends that allow us to then maybe exploit that. Um, the, the, that central idea and, and pursue it. So the first one is uh, conflict has become much more persistent. So there's a level of just churn and and gray zone activity out there that people uh, in the U.S. often you know treat as a challenge or a problem. I, we would argue that it's actually a solution or, or something that's an opportunity uh, because I can use that level of persistent confrontation and conflict as a, a way to uh, conduct activities of my own that help to probe and reveal. Uh, about uh, the preferences of the Chinese leadership. So the fact that they're doing gray zone operations might reveal something about themselves and about what they they believe. Um, I can also pursue some of my own gray zone operations, you know, maybe not as provocative as theirs, uh, but ones that could allow me to probe and understand what are the things they're concerned about, what are the sources of neuralgia in the Chinese leadership regarding their future military operations. So the persistence of conflict needs to be treated as an opportunity rather than as, as a challenge. Um, the second one is is this idea of you know, US dominance coming to an end, you know, we've been so used to being the dominant military for so long that we have to sort of embrace the idea that we are sort of uh, on the, we're, we're an underdog when it comes to this US China conflict in the Western Pacific, um, which means we need to think about being more creative and exploit our innovative you know, capabilities rather than just our uh, precision strike, you know, uh, overmatch. Um, but yeah, again, that's that seems that's kind of an opportunity for us to force change, as opposed to something that we should treat strictly as a challenge. Um, the third big trend is is the centrality of information in competition and in war fighting. We're seeing this Ukraine, where the side with the you know the better information and the better the easier or the more effective way of shaping the information available to your opponent uh, is the side that tends to get a decision making advantage and can use that decision making advantage um, as the Ukrainians have, despite it being. Um, at at initially a numerical disadvantage or a continued uh, disadvantage in terms of just numbers. They've been able to take their force and use it much more effectively as a result of their use of the information environment. Um, The the fourth big trend is this idea of uh, perception shaping being as a military operation idea that you know, we can use military operations, military forces, um, military activities to begin to shape the perception of an opponent regarding how we might operate in the future, what our force compositions might be, what our tactics might be. You know, We can begin to create uncertainty or so uncertainty in Chinese leaders about their confidence uh, regarding future operations by doing things in peacetime under the cover of your persistent confrontation. And then the last thing is the idea that we can use technology for perception shaping and you know this obviously has a long history of you know how do i make an opponent think certain things about me or think certain things about themselves um but it's always been you know done at a very analog you kind of man- manually you know executed level you think about during the cold war what we did with um, the work that like andy marshall and others did to shape the perceptions of the soviets Uh, Today, we've got technology that can help us with this. So not only do we have technology in the form of unmanned systems and military systems that can be much more diverse, much more recomposable, uh, much more uh, effective at causing uh, uncertainty with regard to our con ops. Uh, We also have AI that we could apply to the whole process of operational uh, planning and strategy itself. And I think this is where Bob Work and Eric Schmidt have gotten at, is this idea that it's not just about making our weapons individually more effective or our intelligence, you know, gathering more effective. It's about actually using the AI to help uh, think through, you know, what 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 the perception or what what, I, what uh, my intelligence information is suggesting about the underlying beliefs and uncertainties of the people on the other side, um, you know, meaning the 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 red side, the Chinese side. So that's where we we see technology is really having this enormous ability to impact. Is can we use it for the purposes of Strategy development and execution beyond just individual tactical level actions,
0: and uh, the three lines of effort that come from it.
1: Yeah. So the the first line of effort is um, you know that you know we need, we still need to be able to um, make the Chinese feel uncertain and you know, lack confidence in their ability to be successful. So instead of, though, uh, focusing our force development efforts on attacking Chinese amphibious ships in the Strait of uh, Taiwan, we need to focus instead on attacking China's strategy itself. And this is something Bob Work had talked about is, as well, is you know, system destruction warfare is the Chinese uh, operational approach You know to how they attack U.S. forces. So they look at how we're going to fight They identify uh, key vulnerabilities that they perceive, and they attack those vulnerabilities. Well, we need to turn that around on the Chinese and say, well, we're going to attack that strategy itself, and we're going to do it by focusing our efforts on um, making our forces harder to understand, make those vulnerabilities harder to identify and harder to um, diagnose and quickly act against but we're also gonna damage the uh, sensing and sense-making capability of the Chinese, um, which means we're gonna use cyber, we're gonna use electromagnetic warfare, we're gonna use space capabilities to make it so that the Chinese are less able to in peacetime or in wartime, uh, understand how we're going to operate, how we're going to fight, so that they can, you know, to identify those key vulnerabilities. If they don't feel confident in how their their plans are designed or against our forces, then they're going to feel less confident about their ability to succeed in an invasion. Um, which and this goes back to some of Andy Marshall's old writings about, you know, attack the strategy itself, don't attack the forces, because you know, against a numerically superior opponent, right. that you know, attacking the forces won't work. Uh, the second line of effort is to prepare for protraction. So the you know, we found in our research that you know an area where China might have significant um, you know uncertainty or lack of confidence is in a protracted conflict. And they sort of bet on the short, sharp war as a way to be successful. In a lot of ways, the US has also bet on the short, sharp war because our planning has surrounded that idea, which is why our munition stocks are what they are, why our force design is what it is. Uh, is because we sort of designed our own military around the idea of a short, sharp war. But if instead we think about designing our force with an idea towards being the better force for protraction, you know, which is how we've succeeded in previous wars um, and using our industrial base, using our you know, the creativity of our commercial industry, um, there's a way that we could maybe better prepare for protraction and leverage our allies in a way that the Chinese could not. Um, so there's things about the industrial base. How do we leverage commercial manufacturing processes? How do we leverage allies or how do we work together with allies to allow us to build munition stocks um, and to have the surge capacity? And you've talked about this in the program several times, but how can I leverage uh, an allied capability for munitions manufacturer, for example, to allow me to do modular munitions and have those assembled uh, and you know surged in wartime? Um, and then the third main line of effort is this idea of technology and campaigning. And I think, you know, that the as we mentioned at the start, you know, the new defense strategy talks about campaigning, but that doesn't explain what it is. Um, and we try to focus in this report on the idea that, you know, we need to put words to that idea of campaigning. <laughs> we describe campaigning as a series of actions that are intended to dissuade an net- adversary. And to do that, we're going to use our are the way that we operate the force, the way that we design and, and employ the force um, as a way to you know, send signals to the Chinese um, that are going to hopefully create more uncertainty in their minds regarding how Chinese leaders feel about their likelihood of success in scenarios that you know we don't want them to pursue. We don't want them to pursue an invasion. We want to make them feel more uncertain about the invasion. Let's create Force postures, operational concepts, practice those. Use our operationalized intelligence and AI analysis tools to evaluate how those are being perceived by the Chinese and how they react, and then do that iteratively to better understand. You know if we're being successful or we're driving them in the direction that we think we need. You know we're trying to go. Um, so this idea of you know information warfare or this uh, idea of uh, using uh, control theory is described in the study at length but this is something that you know we've tried before but we had to do it in a very manual fashion today we can automate this to a degree and use uh, ai enabled tools to help us you know help guide that process of campaigning uh, in an effort to shape you know the environment in a way that adversaries say well i'm i'm not likely to succeed in this avenue of invasion i need to put more effort into other paths to you know reunify with taiwan which would be you know obviously still not you know attractive from the us perspective but certainly more attractive than an invasion
0: um, so where does um, you know, you're you're talking about some of the individual technological pieces of this that get, yep. sort of get us there, right? Um right. but it's uh right, as you and I have talked a million times, it's about the cultural pieces of it. Um, right. it's about the training elements of it, it's about the leadership elements of it, right? Yep. There's an overwhelming sense we have on focusing on the mm-hmm. systems instead of going after the strategy, right? Which is right. the only way you do this. Right. Um where is it that we invest and where not because right. we have a tendency of saying oh the chinese are doing this so so like we right. have to do this which right might not make sense Good strategy right. sort of unhinges you um as andy Krepinovich in his in his book just wrote right i mean right. You, you the origins of victory are in the thinking and the work that you did decades before you ever have right. to fight that war right right ultimately where do we invest where do we not invest and what are all the other discrete pieces that go into this because it's not just about opening up an ai tap or opening up a quantum right. tap or just doing jad c2 right i mean we've right. been talking about jad c2 and we still don't have jad c2 and now we, <laughs> just, <laughs> we've been thinking about jad c2 but it's now c jad c2 right, right. Um, anyway g- yeah where are we going where do we need to go
1: Right. So so you know the you know, the three lines of effort sort of drive you or drive us into sort of what the investment priorities would be. So in the first line of effort, this idea of, you know how do I attack the strategy of systems destruction warfare? You know well, it requires me to have uh, capabilities to degrade and, and damage the sensing and sense making of the Chinese, um, which uh, I can do directly. So that's going to mean, Space capabilities to do electronic warfare, space capabilities to uh, improve our own sensing. So this idea of uh, being able to attack the Chinese space-based sensing capability is going to be an element of this. That's probably a very high priority uh, because it does give us a very ability to directly attack their sensing and sense making. Um, the uh, and then of course cyber tools that might allow you to get into. Networks to which, to the degree we have access, you know, because clearly some of these networks are clearly um, are firewalled off from outside uh, effects. But in that case, there might be RF-enabled cyber, so using the you know the RF spectrum or the EM spectrum as the avenue by which you get into somebody else's network. So, you know, the the space part of this, the RF-enabled cyber attack part of this, are probably two, are two big elements of how do I degrade the sensing uh, of the Chinese. And they're probably the only two that we really can leverage, and that they give us probably and they give us enormous uh, return on investment. Um, the other part of this, in terms of th- that first line of effort, is how do I make my force re- more recomposable, better able to you know give the Chinese different looks that undermine their sense making? So you know the, the ability to understand what we're doing and predict in the future how we might operate, um, and that gets to you know they'll you know, get to JADC too. But to get to the you know the, the capabilities you need to be able to be more recomposable means I need to have the ability to knit together units that currently are not you know the, the main ones that work together. So you need to have the idea or you need to have the ability to generate alternative force compositions than the standard ones that the Chinese are used to seeing. Um, and then you need to enable effects chains or kill chains that the Chinese are not used to uh, uh, monitoring or, or and they can't predict are gonna happen in the future. So it does get to some of what JADC2 or combined JADC2 is intended to um, achieve. Um, but we need to probably look at it from the bottom up. So we need to have the COCOM start to identify those kill chains that they think are advantageous. What are the new kill chains that I want to make available? Use that to drive the investments on the part of the, the DOD. And we're working with um, R&E right now on a, on a project looking at this idea of mission integration. How do I make it so that COCOMs can come up with kill chains? Um, we can come up with a way to provide the glue you know, that, that supports those kill chains working together, which is mostly... Um, software to be able to allow data formats to be exchanged between one another. CDAO um, owns a lot of that. Um, And then things like Stitches um, that allow you to uh, allow different uh, uh, radio waveforms to communicate across different data formats. So Stitches, which is a program that was developed by DARPA now being used by the Air Force as part of uh, Agility Prime. Um, That's a way to allow these force compositions to be developed. Um, and then I'd say the other, you know, the, another technology uh, investment is this idea of you know, modular weapons to get to the idea of protraction. Um, you know, do we? How do we start thinking about? Um, yeah, I think a good example of this is the um, the new rocket um, uh, propelled SDB, for lack of a better. So the 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 guided uh, munition that Boeing developed, where you put basically a, uh, a rocket booster or an engine uh, on a uh, small diameter bomb. Um, it allows you to now um, you know create a, a standoff weapon, uh, and that engine is something that's derived from the automotive manufacturing industry rather than from the commercial or for, rather from the uh, missile industry. Um, so you can now put together these modular weapons that are drawn from components that might be more readily available than um, your standard you know weapons designs. Um so there's 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 investment there to start you know coming up with these weapons that are maybe not the perfect munition or the preferred munition, but you can cobble together, um, and create kind of like the jdam of the Gulf War, um, this weapon that's much more effective than its predecessors, but that can be you know knitted together from existing parts you know, quickly and and you can allow that to then you know, enable protraction. And then the last line of effort talks about that you know some of the technologies there is um, this idea of taking, a better harnessing the open source intelligence that's available that involves investment in the kind of integration that the algorithm warfare cross-functional team you know, project maven has been doing um and then paying for the software development to go from just using that for target recognition and target analysis to then step up to the next level which is diagnosing what the you know what the target's activities suggest about what the motivations are of the people making decisions on what those targets are doing. So if you're watching the Chinese forces, seeing how they operate, um, what are some estimates that the AI would make regarding what the motivations are behind those activities? And what does that suggest about what Chinese leaders are thinking? And then can you ge- inject probes into that to cause a reaction that then, you know, generates further insights uh, about what the Chinese leaders are thinking. This is the kind of technique that gets used today, you know, by Facebook and others for um, ad targeting. Um, so this this technology exists. And the question is, can you know, can we repurpose it to this function and integrate it in with our intelligence gathering apparatus? And it's certainly feasible. Um, and the question is, do we want to make the investments to make that possible?
0: So all of these uh, are great technological ideas, uh, uh, Brian. Just really uh, quickly, who is actually driving some of these changes? Right. Theoretically, it's great. There is a lot of activity, um, but at the end of the day, I'm you know who is the one who's championing and and pushing this stuff forward? Because right. you know, RNE is doing some things in terms of new assistant secretaryships, etc. But right, who's who's championing these? Changes and then I have one last question about how to sort of harness all of these technology elements, uh, sort of more broadly.
1: Yeah, great question, Vago. So, um, you know, like you know, like you said, um and E has just set up a, a couple of new assistant secretaries of defense. Um, you know, we're doing some work with uh, Tom Browning, who's one of those who's who's focused on mission capabilities. That's where this mission integration work is going on. Um, he's focused on how do I better knit together you know, the exchange that combatant commanders need to be able to create this greater uncertainty and be, begin to basically probe and and, um, and influence the thinking of Chinese leadership. So that's a, you know, kind of how the force provider world is thinking about this. I think the other big champion is going to be the combatant commander. So in this case, it's going to be Indo-PACOM. Um, um, and in the current NDA draft on the Senate side, and, and I expect it will go through, um, there's direction in there to mount a campaigning effort. Um, that's in line with what we have in this uh, study report. Um, And that campaign effort would be led by Indopaycom. They would be resourced to support those, the analyses that we're talking about here in terms of using operationalized intelligence, using artificial intelligence and other tools to be able to uh, predict what that might mean about what, what Chinese leaders think, or at least operational leaders think, and then use that to build probes and campaign against that to change the you know, the perceptions and the thinking of the the leadership on the other side of the the Taiwan Strait, uh, if you will. So that would be, you know, Indo-PACOM. And I think, you know, Admiral uh, Paparo uh, in particular, who's been nominated now, um, is really thinking along these lines of how do I start to really degrade China's confidence and its ability to to succeed beyond just the idea of saying, I'm going to deny them. Because denial alone is not really going to be sufficient um, if the Chinese start to get, you know, the feeling that uh, they can work through whatever we can deliver against them. They need, we need to start creating a lot more uncertainty with regard to their prediction of our, of our force posture and our, for, of our operations. So I think he's, you know, that's going to be a big a proponent of this approach and the NDA direction might help with that. And then you've got on the force provider side, I think you've got R&E, that's a big component of this. Uh, and then, um, you know, probably an R&E drawing upon, you know, the research organizations that work for them. So SCO, DARPA, um, you know, the, uh, the other special project type offices and then the services research arms, which are also gonna be able to deliver capabilities into this pipeline. Um, but yeah, the, to me, that's where I see kind of the two big centers of, su- you know, support for this type of effort.
0: And and lastly, um, Dr. Arthi Prabhakar, uh, is the President's uh, chief science advisor, somebody who is a DARPA director, and somebody who deeply not just understands technology, but understands how technology would be used, uh, right? Some of the most thoughtful uh, conversations I ever had with her was not just about the raw technology, but how is it you get the most out of the technology you're developing? Where this, this is not a criticism of Secretary Austin or Dr. Hicks or anybody else but does the driving of the fundamental prioritization, does that have to reside? Like where, you know what I mean? If everything's important, nothing's important. And it seems like we're doing a lot of boutique efforts. You're working on a separate thing that uh, we're not gonna discuss now on the program, a capability that actually should have been fielded a decade and a half ago when you and I were talking about it. And we've still not fielded it, right? Uh, Right. You know, so, I mean, it's it's great. It's a brilliant strategy uh, <laughs> that that you and Dan have put together. It doesn't really matter much unless folks are really prioritizing it and saying, hey, look, these are the things we have to do in the order we need to do them, right?
1: Right. You know, so it's interesting. And what why, what why one of the things that led us to this, and, and, you know, this is coming out of a lot of the work we've done with DARPA or done for DARPA over the last couple of years, but, Um, was the, the, like I said, the trends that have been happening in in the world and also in technology, uh, but also this growing recognition that the DoD's current approach of deterrence by denial is going to lose efficacy, right? There was only, you can only squeeze that for so long before the other side really realizes they they feel like they can do it regardless of our attempts. Um, So we have to start shifting to an alternative approach. And I think Inside the department, there's clearly a recognition that's growing in that direction, which is the national defense strategy reflects that, right? The national defense strategy doesn't talk about deterrence by denial, really. It talks about integrated deterrence, it talks about campaigning, so the strategy and the rhetoric is starting to reflect this need to shift to a different approach for addressing the challenge posed by China. Our force planning is not caught up with it. Um, and our force planning is still organized around this operational problem, you know, as opposed to a strategy problem. Um, so I feel like, you know, we're, you know, that that gap, at least now we have a gap. <laughs> at least now there's a, a divergence between strategy and, and action. Um, and can start bringing the action closer in line with the strategy. But I think you're right. Um, It's going to require folks like Dr. Prabhakar up in the White House and the White House to say, hey, you guys need to start acting according to your strategy. You need to start planning the force in a direction that leverages technology to do integrated deterrence and campaigning rather than say one thing and do another.
0: Ryan, always a pleasure uh, having you on the program. Thanks very much. Uh, Please thank Dan. Uh, You guys do
1: terrific work uh, and keep it up. Thank you very much, Bago. It was great being on. I really appreciate it.